Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling coming up. It's earnings season. We've got more earnings, this time by way of Wingstop. And we'll talk about how Dine Equity is struggling as Applebee's struggles. We'll also discuss news with a couple different supermarket chains in the U.S. Southeast. But we begin with Shake Shack as they are suffering somewhat following an earnings call that came out and pegged negative same-store sales for the first quarter. Same-store sales fell 2.5% for the first quarter. Now, we should say that they took negative news and turned it into a positive on the stock market as their stock actually popped by a couple of dollars per share after investors were able to digest some of this information. But still, what everyone is talking about is this same-store sales drop Everyone has their theories, but Leighton, you and I have been noticing a trend. Stores open longer than two years for Shake Shack. Their sales start to tail away, and it appears as though right now Shake Shack can only drive solid sales at locations for about a period of 24 months before they start to fall off. The results from Shake Shack came as no surprise to you or I, especially after having reported on their fourth quarter earnings results. And having talked about that same-store sales metric and discussing how they really haven't been able to keep ahead of the the traffic momentum that they had seen previously, especially with those stores that have been open one, two, three years, they've really seen some numbers fall off. And we'll talk a little bit more about those specifics later as it pertains to average unit volumes, particularly in their larger metropolitan areas. Those have fallen off. But if you look at their top line revenue trend, it did increase. And this was mainly a function of them opening more units globally. Revenue beat expectations of $74.7 million for the quarter. It came in around $76.7 million. And this represented a $23 million increase over the same period last year. So I think a lot of analysts and shareholders were excited that they were at least able to keep this number in check as they are opening those additional units. But they are still profitable despite the lower unit volumes. Earnings per share did beat expectations as well, coming in at $0.10 per share versus the analyst predictions of $0.08 per share. The conference call took place on Thursday of last week around 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And based off the initial statements from their CEO, Randy Guerrero, he said that the company has acknowledged their struggles in the first quarter and they look to transition into some better momentum throughout the rest of the year. But with that comes those new store openings. And if we look through some comparative analysis, you can see that the revenue growth was attributable to 24 new Shake Shacks year over year. In the exact contribution trend, I looked into this, the increase in revenue was $24 million, so roughly $1 million per location. However, if you compare that to their overall revenue increase year over year, you're seeing a revenue increase of around $23 million. So you're seeing that without those additional locations, this fairly new chain within Shake Shack that, again, just IPO'd fairly recently would have actually dropped by $1 million in revenue year over year. So this is a little bit worrisome for analysts and shareholders alike, especially if you look at their 
previous rollout of the Chicken Shack that they had around this time last year. They've come out with some fairly new concepts in these chains, and they've been boosting their advertising expenses as well. And neither one of these measures has really taken to their core customer base. Along with that, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, they've really had some momentum behind their app. They're giving away a lot of free burgers and doing so throughout the fourth and first quarters. But last year, comps were positive, 9.9%, Trent. And I think a lot of analysts were saying that this is going to be a very positive quarter, at least into the low single digits as far as same store sales goes. But if you take a bird's eye view of this company, you're saying that almost 10% same store sales increases shouldn't mean that you're going to collapse this much a year later. So a lot of questions to ask. And the company used a two-year stack in order to make the vision of their company look a little bit better. They said on a two-year stack basis, same-store sales were 7.4%. So basically, they're just aggregating the negative first quarter and the 10% positive first quarter of last year and saying that They're really not in that bad of a case. But if you're looking at the company that is growing, you're suspecting that they're going to want to show shareholders that each individual location is going to be sustainable for the long term. I think that's the biggest issue here. And you and I have looked at the trajectory of the company with stores that are open longer than two years. Sales start to tail off. And that's something they're going to have to answer for as they continue to open new locations and focus on their capital investments that they're making with new locations. And again, they're expecting to open between 23 and 24 locations for the year. That is one location up from their previous guidance. They're also expecting one new license location. But the question remains, can Shake Shack continue to drive sales to new outlets that have been open longer than 24 months? And it's interesting because everyone was talking about the same store sales numbers, at least on the analyst side of things. And everyone had their own take as far as why the same store sales numbers were down. Some people talked about the same store sales numbers potentially being up over the first couple of months before falling off in March. And in fact, in March alone, 2017, they saw negative same store sales of around 8%. This was blamed primarily on cold weather and also a holiday shift. We'll get to that in a second. The cold weather, of course, being some of the storms that hit the Northeast region where a lot of these same store comparables are coming from in this particular earnings report. And, of course, the 90,000 free burgers were also blamed. Now, granted, that equates to about $500,000 in lost revenue. So it makes up some, but not all of the same store sales decrease. And a lot of that you can't even consider lost revenue because there are many customers that probably wouldn't have spent that money at Shake Shack anyway, hence the whole purpose of the promotion. But I want to look here about this idea behind the holiday shift hurting them. Now, keep in mind what they're discussing is the holiday of Easter shifting from the first quarter of fiscal 2016 to now the second quarter of fiscal 2017. They were giving results for fiscal 2017, basically indicating the fact that Easter moved into the next quarter will hurt their first quarter numbers. Now, this is the case a lot of times with grocery stores and with larger FSRs, but usually not always the case with QSRs. So we both found this very interesting. And they mentioned that a lot of their stores had to close because of the severe weather in the Northeast, at least close for a day or two. You know what other times 
Shake Shack's usually closed on Easter Sunday. In fact, many of their stores cut back on their regular hours. Some stores were closed entirely, like their Mall of America location was closed entirely. Some of their mall locations in Pennsylvania were closed entirely. Many of their stores closed early, as early as 5 p.m. So you cannot tell me that on Easter Sunday you're expecting sales that are greater than a typical Sunday when you're not even open the hours to accommodate that. What's more is oftentimes, at least at QSRs and a lot of fast casual places, you see a slight die-off on Easter Sunday. It's not quite as busy because more people, of course, are eating with family, celebrating that type of thing. But moreover, I want to look at something that not a lot of people, in fact, I haven't seen anyone bring this up on the analyst front of things, that are blaming Easter for this decline in same-store sales. I think it's actually the other way around because you know what happens when Easter moves into the next quarter? You move a few weeks of Lent into that next quarter as well. Three total Lent Fridays get moved into the second quarter now this year. And, of course, Shake Shack not really equipped to handle a ton of Lent sales. What's their number one selling item? Burgers and chicken, which a lot of people give up on Fridays during Lent. So they have three whole Lent Fridays that get moved into the second quarter, which means, you guessed it, three more Fridays in the first quarter that people could consume burgers and and the chicken shacks that Shake Shack is so well known for. So I actually view the Easter holiday moving into the second quarter and seeing the same store sales decrease as a negative. I think if Easter were in the same quarter this year, you would have seen same store sales decreases of 3 to 4% instead of about 2.5%. So I think it's actually worse than a lot of people are talking about. I wouldn't use Easter as an excuse here, but more importantly, I would urge people to think about the impacts of Lent on the bottom line for Shake Shack and also on same store sales and by this time three months from now we may be talking about Shake Shack actually blaming the Easter holiday for decreased second quarter sales as well. What's interesting for me is how the company is able to keep turning negative news into positive news and if you look through the earnings transcript you see that they were even trying to say that their New York City market, which is their largest market in terms of units and revenue, was doing exceedingly well. Whereas if you look at the New York market's average unit volumes of $7.5 million from 2016 and compare it to the $7 million in 2017, you can see that overall the company is seeing that a lot of people are getting tired of this concept. They're frequenting these locations a little bit less and the company has tried to explain it by saying that some of these New York City locations obviously this is their main hub or what they consider their hub are a little older they're about two to three years four years old so they're going to have a little less traffic but that's exactly the opposite of what your mentality should be if you're a manager with this type of operation you should be wanting positive same store sales despite the market headwinds in the restaurant and QSR industry for consecutive quarters and for the years to come. And right now, I think the company is just fine resting on the fact that they have more locations planned out for the rest of the year and for 2018. But I think if you're opening more locations that aren't getting a lot of excitement around them and you have to give away free burgers and those types of things to really garner up excitement, I think that's going to be a very hard sell, especially when you have 
other operators that we've talked about time and time again within Five Guys and In-N-Out Burger. Both of those are increasing their number of units over what Shake Shack has planned out. So I think right now, if you're looking at the same store sales and those average unit volumes, there's a lot of problems in the future. And especially with those free giveaways, we're talking about the app promotion, they had released their app during the fourth quarter of last year. And we see that overall, those 90,000 burgers, Trent, which you had said equates to around $500,000 on lost revenue, isn't necessarily lost revenue because you're bringing in potentially new customers. So only a portion of that is actually lost revenue. And that also means with those same store sales falling, that some of those customers are no longer recurring customers or have not at all returned to a Shake Shack location after having visited with that app promotion. So a lot of interesting things. And it all translates to, again, a 7% dive in after hours trading. But Trent, as you had mentioned, shares have actually rebounded since those after hours tradings. And you see that shares are down to around $30 a share after the conference call, but have rebounded in the day since they're now trading as of recording this food focused podcast to around $37 a share, which is actually higher than their previous three week average. We move on to another company that's in a growth phase. Now, granted, a growth phase that includes four figures in terms of number of locations and not two figures, as Wingstop is seeing green after acknowledging success in their delivery programs. The most recent one rolled out in Las Vegas. This, combined with strong advertising campaigns, appears to have helped the specialty restaurant in their first quarter as they released earnings over the course of the last seven days. Like Shake Shack, they did see same-store sales fall, but by much less of a margin. In fact, same-store sales fell 1.1%. We'll talk about that more here in just a second. The so-called wing experts beat on both profit and revenue. Profit came in at $0.22 cents per share. And again, that's a gap measure profit versus the $0.16 cents per share that analysts had provided guidance for. Their net income figures are also interesting. Not only did they beat analyst expectations here, but also the prior year's income by quite a bit. And on the net income front, they came in with $6.5 million in the most recent quarter to $4.3 million on an overall basis in the prior year's first quarter. What's funny is that this year their non-GAAP income is actually exactly the same as their GAAP income, which you don't see very often. Usually people kind of cook the non-GAAP numbers to look a little bit better for the business. That's not the case with Wingstop here in the most recent quarter. And what I'm most excited about as I look at some of these financials, look at some of these numbers and these programs that Wingstop has in place, as a percentage of overall revenue, their earnings are even stronger this year than last year. Last year, as a percentage of revenue, their earnings came in at 19.45%, again, on a percentage of revenue basis. This year, 24.44% of revenue is reflected as net income. So, Basically, you're seeing margins go up significantly for Wingstop. And there are a number of different factors here, but I think primarily the factor that is at play is their expansion. They're benefiting from franchise fees. They're benefiting from initiation fees for their new franchises that are opening. 
However, I would note that we shouldn't quite expect this level of execution in the future, especially when you're looking at margins, since eventually their white space in the U.S. at least will run out and new openings will be unable to subsidize operational efficiency at this level. But still, I think you're going to see very high margins in comparison to most food retailers, and that is fueled primarily by the fact that they are largely a franchised operator. As far as their top-line revenue is concerned, it increased over 20% from a year ago, 20.4% to be exact, and came in at $26.6 million. It was $22.1 million last year. We did talk about same-store sales falling by 1.1%, and some media outlets were focused on this. It didn't stop their stock from popping on Wall Street, though, and unlike Shake Shack, who noted negative same-store sales, trends on the back half of the first quarter. Wingstop actually noted positive same-store sales trends towards the back half of the first quarter, and they have retained their same-store sales growth prospects for the entirety of fiscal year 2017 in the low single-digit range. It is worth noting that they do have 13 consecutive years of positive same-store sales. They credited a marketing campaign to draw awareness to their brand for some of this late-quarter jump that they saw. Despite the same-store sales loss in the first quarter, they are operating more efficiently on what revenue they are generating. Again, part of that is due to the franchised model. When you have a high percentage of your restaurants franchised, you're going to see the bottom line move less on slight fluctuations in same-store sales. It seems like a good time since we've mentioned it a few times to remind our listeners that of their 948 domestic stores, 927 or 97.8% of them are franchised. So the heavy, heavy majority of their stores or restaurants in the U.S. are franchised. Of their international stores, and they have 83 of those, 76 are franchised, which comes in above 91%. So they're a heavily franchised group. They opened 33 net new stores in the first quarter. Overall, 28 franchised domestic restaurants, 7 franchised international restaurants. These openings all helped to make up for the same store sales loss. They did close to franchised domestic restaurants, so two restaurants in the U.S. In terms of year-over-year growth, currently 927 domestic locations, over 1,000 overall. And you look at the conclusion of last year's first quarter, they had 796 domestic locations. So they are growing year-over-year and over the last 18 months by well over 20%. And Leighton, they're not content with just store growth. They're testing out delivery programs, and they think this might be the next frontier to unlock additional profit at Wingstop. In the Las Vegas market, in fact, management seems very bullish on the test that they've done in some pilot programs there with food delivery. And this is interesting because you tend to think of pizza and wings. Those two things have long embraced the idea that people do, in fact, want to eat at home, especially with this type of food. We're talking about things like event gatherings, where it is more economical and easier to not leave the home during a sporting event or anything else that may be happening, where you have a large group of people and you want to order ahead of time. And that same ordering is something I wanted to touch on here for our listeners and that Digital sales now comprised around 20% of their overall orders, so they really have been pushing their app, and that is how they're able to have these tests done. It's all through their application there for that Las Vegas market, so people can just get on their smartphones 
and make everything a one-stop purchase center. And this is up 20% year-over-year digital sales are. And then if you look, by comparison, 50% of orders are made by the phone, and then 75% of orders overall are takeout. So this is primarily a takeout-type franchise. And this is interesting because they really are playing off the idea that people do more and more want to eat at home. This isn't just for the one-time off gatherings where you may have some friends over for the big game, but this is really trying to capitalize off of the fact that people love the flexibility, the idea that they can just relax, they can come home, eat their meal, and then that's it. They don't have to go out and make a big deal about it. Overall, you see the, those store openings, Trent. This is going to be a significant driver of growth. But as you mentioned, having so many locations already domestically is a little bit worrisome. However, they are looking to expand a little bit more. You had mentioned the seven franchised international restaurants. They mentioned other countries all over the world. In fact, Malaysia was mentioned during the conference call. And then Saudi Arabia, Colombia, and Panama. So just all over the place, all over the board. And this really ties into the company's main goal of being a top 10 restaurant brand globally in the future. So I think that's going to have to really take precedence if you're looking at a domestic market that is going to be a little more saturated in the next five to 10 years. They are going to have to look outside the United States if they are going to grow. This is a very sustainable operation and the fact that they're able to get these franchisees on board. And these franchisees are operating very well with these key initiatives. We're talking about delivery and the enhancement of their mobile application. These are all things that the franchisees and the general managers at these individual locations have to be on board with if they were to make it a profitable program overall. And if you look on their website, this was actually just one line down talking about franchise opportunities and that come on board, we're a growing business. And so I think if you combine that with the idea of this international expansion, I think this is going to be a company that's going to be bullish for the long term. And I think analysts saw it the same way, Trent, as shares were trending up after the announcement. And this is all echoed in their 2017 investor presentation that since the last time we've talked about Wingstop have had a chance to peruse since it came out after their last quarterly earnings. And one of the things that I think is unique about the chain is that they see themselves as a category of one, really unique in terms of to-go wing restaurants. You have the sports bar concepts like Buffalo Wild Wings. You have local competitors. But Wingstop is a unique concept, and that's something that their leadership wants to drive home, at least through some of their investor materials that they send out. And you mentioned and talked about keeping things fresh, trying to keep customers coming in, releasing limited time offers in their sauces, releasing limited time seasonings. That's one way to do it. But they don't have that diversified menu that a lot of other restaurants do. And I think part of the reason that this is effective for Wingstop, they're able to keep staffing down because they're only concerned about making a certain number of things and they're only concerned with carry out. You don't have all of the problems that may occur with people eating in. And one of the things that we've seen with Buffalo Wild Wings is that they've struggled because they've seen their to-go business jump, but that's cutting into their margins. And we see a similar effect with Applebee's that we'll talk about later on in the podcast. Wingstop currently with 12 flavors. Their latest LTO is Brazilian citrus pepper, and they keep trying to differentiate themselves on flavors. And in fact, they say even on their investor relations page, they don't see themselves as a wing company. They see themselves as a flavor company. 
And so the goal for them going forward is to differentiate themselves on the flavor front. It's worked for them so far. If we take a look back over the last three to four years, they actually outpaced Chipotle and Buffalo Wild Wings in total domestic unit growth since 2013. If unit growth at 58.2% in terms of overall restaurants. Chipotle is at 49.2%. We all remember how much they were expanding even before the E. coli scare. And then you have the 2012 through third quarter of fiscal year 2016 SAC, same store sales for Wingstop, they're at 48.0%, 48.0% stack same store sales over the last four plus years. In comparison, one of the hottest QSRs out there right now, Domino's, if you stack their same store sales together, you're looking at 37.7% for comparison. So Wingstop over 10% above that. Shake Shack for comparison is at 35.7%. You look at the price to earnings ratio of a Shake Shack, it's around 70. It's not nearly that large for Wingstop. So I think although the market isn't quite as optimistic about Wingstop as a company like Shake Shack, you can see where not only they have the white space for growth internationally, but they've been able to continue their same store sales momentum and their concept appears to work for the consumer in 2017, which is possibly the best thing you could ask from a restaurant. One final note, they started issuing a dividend last year. Their dividend to shareholders last year ended up being right around 10% of their overall share price, $2.90. So they're one of the highest dividend stocks you see in the restaurant sector. They are committed to providing value back to the shareholders, which again, you can only do if you're significantly profitable and Wingstop is. And those shares that you mentioned did surge 12% in after hours trading. However, they are back to near pre-earnings levels from around $29 a share after the market closed on Thursday of last week to a high of around $33 a share as of Friday morning. They're right around $30.85 right now as of recording this podcast. Overall, you did mention the price to earnings ratio is not one that is as optimistic as a Shake Shack operator, but their price to earnings ratio is currently at around 51, which is again a little indicative of growth for the long term. And you see a, a company that is growing and they have so many more units out there than they did just five to six years ago. And what's interesting is those units are profitable, it's not like they're growing at an unreasonable pace. And so overall, if they were to keep this pace, I think this is a very good valuation for a company. Ticker W-I-N-G. We move on to grocery retail with Ingalls Market, a North Carolina-based grocer that showed signs of why grocery retailers are not yet out of the deep end. With their second fiscal quarter results, they reported for the period ending March 24th, and they formally released the financial results on Friday of last week. Revenue increased slightly for Ingalls, coming in up 2.4%, topping $946.2 million. This included gas sales for the operator, as they do operate several gas stations at their individual locations. And we should also mention that Robert P. Ingle II, their chairman, mentioned in their 8K filing with the SEC that new and existing stores have been planned. We see that new stores are contributing to top-line revenue in a meaningful way. 
They do expect to open stores later this year. How many? They did not say. But between improvements to existing stores and these new store openings, they see between $100 and $140 million in capital expenditures before the end of the year. So they are seeing some white space there. Excluding fuel, same-store sales fell 0.3%. Hence, those new store openings really helping the bottom line out. We saw those 2.4% revenue increases there. This was a function of traffic increasing, but overall basket decreasing. A trend, again, grocery retail has been seeing as food stagnation or deflation is still greatly in effect, despite reports of inflation really hitting during this calendar year. Also, Easter moved from the second quarter in 2016 to the third quarter in 2017. So these 2017 results do not include those Easter impacts. But overall, you see that the operator is profitable with net income for the quarter totaling $9.2 million. However, this was down for the grocery operator, down from $14.4 million in last year's second quarter. Again, reflecting personnel costs that we've seen throughout both the restaurant and grocery retail industries. And they also cited higher interest expenses. This represented overall a 36.1 decline in earnings mentioned the decreased basket size, but I think the fact that traffic is up is certainly reflective of future positivity for Ingalls here, as well as the fact that they are selling more gasoline, both in terms of price, but also in terms of gallons. Anytime you see that gasoline consumption go up at the grocery store in gallons, you have some tie-in sales there, which is one of the reasons why so many grocers do have fuel outlets. You talked about some of their staffing expenses. Actually, their staffing expenses went up nearly $7 million from $196 million to $203 Three million from last year's second quarter to this year's second quarter, and they said that increase almost entirely tied up with personnel costs, wage inflation, which they're starting to experience just like uh, just about every other grocer and everyone in the restaurant industry that we often talk about on the Food Focus. And you might ask, well, why are we willing to go ahead and give Ingalls a slight pass on their same-store sales declines because of Easter's quarterly move when we weren't willing to do so for Shake Shack? Obviously, two different industries there. Shake Shack, depending on how you slice them, fast casual or QSR industry, those industries are usually less affected by Easter than, of course, grocery stores, which see an influx in purchases, especially large purchases, even with loss leaders included, such as hams, around the Easter holiday. And you see the traffic also increase around the Easter holiday. So this would suggest, too, that both traffic and even basket size may increase during their next quarterly report, their third quarter report, to come out in around three months. A quick backstory regarding Ingalls for those that don't live in the U.S. Southeast or are not familiar with the grocery store chain. They were started by Robert Ingle, who is himself a third-generation grocer, in 1963 in Asheville, North Carolina. It's spelled I. N-G-L-E, and the sign kind of has a, a goofy-looking font where the G and the L are accented, even though they're lowercase, they're placed in the position of capital letters. Basically, they have a strategy similar to Harps, if you're familiar with that type of chain. That would be in Arkansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, generally close to the American Southeast, where they expanded into smaller towns not already served by grocery giants. And for Ingalls, the grocery giants in the 1960s and 70s were Winn-Dixie, A&P, 
and Colonial. We'll talk about Winn-Dixie a little bit later on in this podcast. Chains with this strategy, as kind of an aside to our listeners, have seen mixed results of late. Fred's grew very much so through this type of strategy. They're a discount pharmacy chain. They've been mentioned a lot with the recent Rite Aid, Walgreens, Boots Alliance merger talks. They've actually seen recent growth. But also you see in at least the discount store category, Alco going bankrupt. They had a smaller market focus. And on the other side of it, Harps, who I just mentioned, they're actually exploding with growth after they bought a number of old Walmart Express locations following Walmart's exiting of that concept in early 2016. And they are growing by leaps and bounds. They're actually an employee-owned grocer, very similar to Publix in Florida or based out of Florida. Robert Engel, back to the founder, he was very intent on real estate acquisition. So he actually set Engels up pretty well for the next couple of decades in the 70s and 80s by acquiring so much real estate. In fact, they own two-thirds of their store's real estate, according to their company profile. Now, granted, this is something that is slightly easier to do when you're purchasing real estate in rural areas. It is not so highly sought after as real estate in some of the more urban markets, the Charlottes of the world and that type of thing. But it's been able to save them money on retail rents with retail rents continuing to go up. Although on the other end of this, despite the fact that they have very little in the way of retail rents for a chain this size, they did claim $27.8 million in depreciation expense during this last quarter, which is, of course, something you do have when you own real estate and you own your own building. One other thing that they actually own their own of is their own milk processing facility, a place called Milk Co. It's a wholly owned subsidiary, so they do get some benefit from this in the vertical integration. And Milk Co. actually provides other grocers with the milk that they sell. Currently, Ingalls operates around 200 stores in six states. All of these stores are within 250 miles of their single distribution center. They only have one distribution center for 200 stores, which is highly unique and highly unusual. But these new store openings that they're talking about, they will all be in this same radius as well. Again, the six states, mostly in the American Southeast, you have Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina mixed in there. Brief discussion about their stock and what happened to the stock after the earnings call. The stock slipped from $45.25 prior to earnings to $41.85 the day following earnings, currently sitting at $40.55 with a price-to-earnings ratio floating right around $15. They do issue shareholders a dividend slightly over 1%, so not unusual from a legacy grocer. And their market cap is at $821 million. So a little bit of a background regarding Ingalls. And although they're not claiming going forward that they want explosive expansion and they want to take on the Kroger's of the world and the Publix's of the world, they are content with the markets they're in. And I think it's going to be very difficult for an outside grocer like the likes of Walmart or Publix to invade some of these markets Ingalls stores are already located in because of their strong brand awareness. And it does give them a competitive advantage by owning some of the real estate that they have. And then also, like you said, where they own and operate their own milk processing facility, there are certain advantages to these. And one, namely, 
lies within their Ingalls Green Initiatives platform, which is concerning with energy management, things like lighting, refrigeration, heating and cooling. All of these are going to be made more efficient over the next few years and a broad initiative by the company to not only save money, but make a sustainable impact on the areas in which they exist. So not only this, their Ingalls Distribution Center, as you said, is very unique in that it's very large and it services nearly all of their current production and distribution. They are extremely focused on reducing transportation costs and fuel usage in the later years. And we're talking about other things as well, such as a recycling program where they recycle cardboard, plastic wrap bags and plastic pallets, things of that nature. But it is all going to help their bottom line. So not only is this going to be sustainable and a very good PR measure for the company, it's also going to save them and make them more profitable in the years to come to make them fight off those bigger operators such as Kroger or Walmart. One final note on Ingalls before we move on. From a graphic design perspective, their website leaves a lot to be desired, a lot of different fonts and that type of thing on their website. But one area they could use development in is in terms of the remote shopping capabilities or the ability to order things beyond just baked goods online. When we talked last year to independent grocer Ron Rhodes on the Retail Focus podcast, he had mentioned how much easier it has become for some independent grocers and small chains to offer apps and the ability to purchase things ahead of time for customers at these grocers. And that is a step that certainly Ingalls could take to potentially kind of keep up with the times and make sure that these customers that they're serving in largely rural areas or smaller towns get the same type of convenience that they might experience at a grocer in a larger town. Dine Equity, the parent company of Applebee's and IHOP, released earnings this week as well. A quick historical note, we are actually nearing the 10-year anniversary of IHOP's acquisition of Applebee's. This deal was actually first announced in July of 2007. And at that time, the deal was almost entirely against Applebee's assets as IHOP had a market cap of less than $1 billion at that time, yet acquired Applebee's at a $1.9 billion valuation and assumed another $160 million in debt. They sought to push Applebee's towards a more franchise-centric model, and they have so far succeeded at least in doing that. However, we must ask, did it all work and was it all worth it? And we'll actually be covering this particular topic on a special retrospective later in July of this year. But as for their earnings, Cole Trent, this is more of an Applebee story as the standout piece of information here was that IHOP's comparable same restaurant sales were down 1.7%, but Applebee's was much more hurt during the quarter as they are headed towards Pi Fives category, even with same store sales dropping around 7.9%. This was even worse than the same store sales drop that they had had in the fourth quarter with 7.2%. But overall, we see that there is just a lot of competition in their particular category. And this is something I've been thinking about since they came out with this earnings report last week, Trent, is that there's not a ton of differentiation between an Applebee's neighborhood grill and a Ruby Tuesday. And this is something they've been up against for years now and that they've tried to revamp some of their locations. And then even in the Midwest, they've actually tried to shut down some locations and build entirely new structures to try to garner a more cleaner appearance. But this really hasn't drawn in the traffic. And we're looking at an operation right now that is just collapsing. And you see that with their shares dropping around 5% after the earnings news. 
As far as some of the other earnings numbers are concerned, their gap earnings per share, 79 cents per share, adjusted earnings per share of $1.22. This actually beat analyst consensus estimates of adjusted earnings per share of $1.20, but not so favorably to last year's adjusted EPS of $1.58. So analysts were projecting quite a steep drop-off just because Applebee's and IHOP beat it by a slight margin doesn't necessarily mean they're having operational success. To make matters worse, during the last 12 months, Dine Equity actually bought back shares to this number. This earnings per share number and the drop-off is actually slightly worse than what it appears on the surface. IHOP's top-line revenue, if you look just at them as a restaurant, actually went up by two-tenths of a percent. When they talk about IHOP during this earnings call, Dine Equity leadership was still pretty strong on that concept. They liked the initiatives to bring in additional traffic, to bring in additional customers, and they didn't put a lot of their focus on IHOP, but they did on Applebee's, whose top-line revenue went down by 8.6%, fueled by both closures and those same-store sales losses of 7.9% that Leighton mentioned earlier. I don't know if this is actually a worse sign for the company than Applebee's same-store sales because that is a pretty bad metric, but their selling general and administrative expenses were $50.3 million in the first quarter of fiscal year 2017 compared to $39.4 million in last year's fiscal first quarter. So their top-line revenue was down by over $6 million, but their selling general and administrative expenses went up by over 25%. There are a couple of different reasons for this. Neither one of them is very positive. To an extent, they were hindered by around $9 million of what they called non-recurring cash severance and equity compensation charges related to the separation of our previous CEO. Who is that previous CEO of Dine Equity, you ask? None other than the person that brokered the Applebee's deal for IOP in the first place, Julia Stewart. She's been largely credited as revitalizing IHOP as a whole, but she also helped to broker this Applebee's deal that now has Dine Equity in a little bit of trouble. She took over IHOP back in 2002, and when she was ousted in February of 2017, she was one of the longest-serving CEOs in the restaurant industry as a whole. One of the interesting things about her backstory, she had previously served at Applebee's, so she had a little bit of inside knowledge before the Applebee's IHOP deal went through. The other aspect that hindered their selling general and administrative expenses was about $3 million poured into what they called Applebee's Stabilization Initiatives. And we were joking off the air that maybe this included lighter fluid and matches, but in reality, a lot of it includes a lot of research and diagnostics. And in fact, their interim CEO and also the lead director on Dine Equity's board, Richard Dahl, said in February of Applebee's, and I quote, while a turnaround will not happen immediately, the results of a comprehensive diagnostic conducted by a world-class management consultant firm has enhanced our understanding of what has driven our recent sales trends. All of that is basically to say that they think they know what the problem is and now they're setting about fixing it. So that's part of where that $3 million comes into play that hampered that particular line on their balance sheet. Now we should mention Dahl's other food industry experience as an executive before stepping on as interim CEO at Applebee's was with Dole from 2004 to 2007. Dole is in the produce company and prepackaged value-added foods company. He was the president and CEO there. So really the question remains, why 
is Applebee's failing? Why is Applebee's struggling with these same store sales metrics? A lot of reasons here. For one, we've talked multiple times about the full-service restaurant sector and how they've seen recent headwinds. Just about every company we've mentioned in this episode of the Food Focus has seen same store sales decreases. It's been off-sited that people are increasingly eating at home like we talked about during the Wingstop story. To-go restaurants like Wingstop or Domino's or Papa John's, any one of those that's had a lot of success in the last two years are beginning to take more and more market share away from companies like Applebee's. And although Applebee's has a to-go program, they struggle somewhat in bolstering margins, which I'll talk about in just a second. Companies such as Blue Apron and HelloFresh are also eating into market share of traditional FSRs because they're crafting sometimes attractive options for families to stay at home and cook because they're able to portion those type of things out, use shipping to get those ingredients directly to stores and now it's become chic for some families to stay at home and cook in addition they're seeing increased competition from growing fast casual concepts which we talk about seemingly every week we've talked about restaurants from shake shack earlier today to costa vita and on down the line that are these fast casual concepts all trying to be the chipotle of their field and it's crowding the marketplace somewhat for these fsrs which also carry with it an expectation of being there for an hour and 30 minutes or even two hours during busy times as you wait for your food. The FSRs, though, that are successful have differentiated themselves or have industry-leading concepts. Olive Garden, for example, is the Italian FSR leader. Texas Roadhouse, who we talked about on a recent podcast, differentiates on atmosphere and food quality. Cracker Barrel differentiates on location, oftentimes close to a major thoroughfare or traveling highway. They also feature a country store that can kind of bolster sales as well. Also for Applebee's, they installed all these wood grills in locations over the last two years. They haven't drawn in customers as expected. And new Applebee's president, John Siwinski, said in their earnings call that the brand has had a few missteps over the past 18 months. He was referencing the wood grills, but also this rebranding effort that's supposedly been going on. And Leighton, you talked about them closing some restaurants and reopening, but quite honestly, at most Applebee's locations, we just haven't seen the rebrand. What Siwinski kind of suggested was that they're trying for this Moxie's grill and bar type atmosphere. And honestly, I don't really see it from Applebee's because they essentially have the same menu other than the wood grilled items that they had two, three, four, five years ago. And as we discussed with Buffalo Wild Wings at the top of the show when we were talking about Wingstop, the to-go offerings and the car side to-go program at Applebee's oftentimes cuts down on their high margin orders. This is the case for any restaurant. Same thing with Chili's. Anything that's car side or a to-go program, your high margin orders such as alcohol, soda, desserts, oftentimes those get written out of the picture completely. And so the margins become a little bit more crimped as well. As you had alluded to, Trent, they are closing several locations. In the first quarter of 2017, Applebee's closed 19 restaurants and has seen net new closures of 23 in the last 12 months. So you can see in an actual acceleration of closings with the Applebee's brand. They are 100% franchised now, so they were successful in implementing that program, which was a key initiative from the management as IHOP had first acquired Applebee's around nine years ago. But 
Overall, we see that they currently have 2,007 domestic locations, and IHOP, by comparison, added 45 net new stores over the last two months, whereas now they have 1,728 locations, with not all of them franchised, which is interesting, but the majority of them are 1,552 are franchised, 166 are licensed, and 10 of those remaining are company-owned. You see here that a company has been talking about their brand and brand image for some time, really trying to appeal to their core class is what they've been wanting to do now as they transition and try to restructure their business. They said they've lost sight of middle America. And I think this is interesting because they talked about grooming new executives that really care about the brand. But I thought this was interesting in that they didn't talk much about bringing in well-versed executives that have been in the FSR industry or at least a successful part of it in the domestic markets. And so I think this is going to be an interesting strategy for them as statements made by other analysts have really cited that they only see additional store closures happening throughout the rest of 2017. Alex Dixon at FSR Magazine hinted in an article about a month ago that perhaps we could see up to 3% more closures in 2017. They are eyeing around 40 to 60 underperforming restaurants for closures. Their stock ticker DIN fell from 56.55 before the earnings call to 53.79 on May 2nd, which was the day of the call. Currently, their stock's around $51 a share, which is actually nearing a 52-week low, which was $49.53. Ironically, this has actually made their dividend fairly valuable at $3.88 per year, or an overall percentage yield of 7.38. Well, speaking of closures of outlets, we move back to the grocery industry for our last very quick story. Southeastern Grocers has announced that they're closing around 20 stores and restructuring parts of its business in order to regain strength in the highly competitive and concentrated grocery space. Southeastern Grocers, as the name suggests, they do operate in the southeastern United States, although a lot of their outlets are in more urban areas, unlike Ingalls Markets, who we talked about earlier. Southeastern Grocers is privately held as recently as 2015, ranked number 31 on Forbes's list of U.S. privately held companies. They're located in Jacksonville, Florida, and some of their brands include Winn-Dixie, Harvey's, and Bilo, among others. There will be a total of at least eight Winn-Dixie closures, one Harvey's closure, and six Bilo closures. This, according to Supermarket News, who kind of aggregated the closure stories for the benefit of people in this industry. And Leighton, this seems to be a response to some of their flagging sales at many locations. Yes, and as a chain, the revenues dipped by 7% in 2016, and same-store sales fell by 3.6%. They are seeing increased competition from Publix, who is actually moving northward, and from Florida, and then Walmart, of course, and then also Kroger through acquisition. They're talking about Harris Teeter here and other Kroger brands. And so I think there's this increased competition, but also increased pricing pressure, a theme that we've been talking about with grocery stagnation. And they just haven't 
been able to build out a sustainable model. And it's interesting in that they still do have a lot of locations, over 700 locations in the United States, something that caught you and I off guard. So closing just 20 stores should help free up a little bit of cash, at least in the short term, to try to reinvest and restructure parts of their business. But I think overall, you have seen a message from company executives saying that they need to restructure at the store level. And with that, you see an announcement that they will be potentially changing out some team lead positions and things of that nature to to really try to focus on those individual costs. But overall, another grocer that's facing some headwinds into 2017. For Southeastern Grocers, they can unlock a little bit of that capital that you mentioned if they do own some of these locations. It's not entirely clear which locations they own and which locations they rent, but we've talked a lot about retailers in general trying to unlock value from their real estate and I'll be anxious to keep an eye on Southeastern Grocers as they close these 20 stores and see if some of them they can unlock that real estate from if they do own them. As we close out this episode of the Food Focus podcast, each Leighton and I will tell you about a new product to the world of food or beverage that we tried over the course of the last week and Leighton we begin with you. So my story actually has something to do with a restaurant that was briefly mentioned here as a competitor to Shake Shack. I went to Five Guys here recently as I told myself I can only go once every three months as part of my diet planning. But overall, I am feeling a little bit guilty now that I had went there. And I wanted to go because I had a 10% rebate off of a Bank of America purchase. So I have a credit card that offers these specialty deals and Five Guys had signed on to be a part of that. So I got 10% off of my meal in total via credit card rebate. But I had two cheeseburgers, Trent, two regular cheeseburgers, as most of our listeners probably will acknowledge, each carry two patties. And if you look at a regular cheeseburger, and this is what I wanted to focus on here because most people are familiar with the concept, but not the nutrition facts. So 840 calories per regular cheeseburger and 55 grams of fat and over 1000 milligrams of sodium. So all of those are well outside of my diet range. But I again, I ate two of those cheeseburgers. And then on top of that, I ended up having a small fry. And so if you look at the fries, the regular five guys style fry is what they call it. They also have the Cajun style fry at most of their locations. But a regular fry is 953 calories, 41 grams of fat, and 962 milligrams because of that salt that they use. But a very interesting take because I had really told myself that I needed to limit myself for this month. But after having looked over the Shake Shack story, it really got my appetite going. And I decided to go ahead and indulge, especially since I really don't have another concept like an In-N-Out burger or a Shake Shack where I live. So I ended up going all out. And because of that, I'm paying for it in terms of around 2,700 calories. Well, that's not exactly something that's new to the world of food, but I think you should be able to work off those calories pretty quickly considering how often you hit the gym. The item that I tried is once again going to be a beer. It's once again an alcoholic beverage, and this seems a little bit redundant because I've been trying a lot of beers recently, but this time something caught my eye as Boulevard Brewery, who's experienced increased distribution after their acquisition by Duvel Brewery back in 2013 has issued a mixed 12-pack, as they often do, and they mix in a couple of tasting room beers, usually 
based on the season. And this season, they're offering the extra pale ale and their spicy rye ale. And that latter one is what caught my eye as I am a big fan of rye-based beers. And this Boulevard offering did not disappoint. It does have a rich maltiness. A little bit of that spiciness contributed both through the malt and through the hops that are used. But it's got an excellent dry finish that makes it a sessionable beer despite the maltiness. The beer comes in at 5.3% alcohol by volume, and it is excellent, but right now is only available in the mixed 12 packs. And it's not just the spice coming from the rye. They actually use crushed pink peppercorns at the end of their boil, at least according to the website. None of that was listed on the bottle, but it's a very interesting beer. It is both delicate and hearty all at the same time, and I highly recommend it. I just wish that it was available in six or 12 packs rather than these mixed 12 packs where you only get three bottles of it for every 12 bottles of beer that you buy. Now, granted, the other beers are the Extra Pale Ale, Boulevard Wheat, and the Single Wide IPA. Those aren't bad beers either, so it's not a waste of money by any means. That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus Podcast. On behalf of Leighton, I'm Trent saying so long until next time. We'll be back with Retail Focus later this week where we discuss earnings from Wayfair.com. As always, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus or at Retail Podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. This has been The Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 